Good morning. Welcome again. Welcome home, family. So glad to see everyone here worshiping with us this morning. Hope everyone's had some fun on this, or is going to have some fun on this long weekend for most people. And we can take some moments to recognize and remember those who uh, gave their life for the country and and honor them as well. So thank you, uh, worship team, in helping us lead us in worship. We're continuing our series going through the book of Exodus, and we'll be in Exodus chapter 20 here in a bit. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Day that you have made for us to come and worship you. A day in which we can gather as your people and lift our song, our, our voices in song, lift our, uh, our souls in prayer, sit under your word to grow. Lord, I just pray that you continue to work in our lives and in this church. We thank you for the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word that we can read it and know you and grow in your ways. And Lord, we just pray as we open up your, your word that you bring it to life to us. As we read a passage probably familiar to so many people that we can see it with new eyes and we see it through the lens of Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's always dangerous when you go to the internet and ask it to help you out. Or another way you could say it, it can be dangerous when you try to crowdsource uh, something uh, for your benefit. The British government found this out a couple years back, several years back, when they had a new uh, Arctic, I think, or Antarctic research vessel that they were going to commission. This was a Navy vessel that cost about, you know, $280 million, and they say, hey, let's get to pop this behind us, and let's have an online competition where people can submit names to name it. That should get the people excited, right? And they're like, we're going to take the number one voted name which ended up being decided to take the number four name, which was uh, Sir David Attenborough, you know, the guy who voices all those nature documentaries and, and stuff like that. But it's dangerous when you go to the internet or you go to the popular and say, hey, let's crowdsource what we should do or what we should believe. Some other people found this out when they actually said, hey, let's go to the internet, to the people, and gather people together back in 2014 and said, hey, let's get the people to give us some of the non-commandments people should live by, which right there is that's a weird statement, right? This idea that we, let's, let's go see what are the, the 10 non-commandments that people want to or should live by in this day and age, and so they did, they compiled it, they had over or close to 3,000 people submit kind of these non-commandments that they think people should live by, and they kind of voted on and kind of developed these 10 rules or 10 ways that which the modern person should, should think. And they go like this, they say, hey, be open-minded, be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not to believe what you wish to be true. The scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Every person has the right to control of their body. God is not necessary to be a good person or to live in a full, meaningful life. Be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize that you must take respect them to want to be treated. Think about their perspective. We have the responsibility to consider others, including future generations. There is no one right way to live. Leave the world a better place than you find it. Now, it's funny because if you just read those, you immediately see how they're just filled with contradictions within themselves. 
From the very get-go, the idea of actually collecting non-commandments that people should live by shouldn't make us laugh. It makes no sense. And then when you read it, in your number seven is treat others as you would want them to treat you. That actually is pointing to the golden rule that Jesus gave for his disciples. But they already said you don't need God to understand how to treat people. And so they're contradicting themselves. And then after all this is said and done, and they're giving you these non-commandments that are carry this moral ought to do, they kind of almost close it with saying, ah, there's no one right way to live anyways. Just kind of discounting everything they said in the first place. That there's really dangerous to go to the crowd to think about how we should live. What is the standard for life? Where do we find that? Do we listen to our gut? Do we look inside ourselves or do we look somewhere else? like to God. David, uh, I mean, Kevin DeYoung, a pastor and author, says it this way, the way to find moral instruction is not by to know how to live the good life. If we want to know how to live in a way that blesses our friends and neighbors, we'd be wise to do, thing God's, to do things God's way, which means paying careful attention to the Ten Commandments. So if you guessed it already, when we come to Exodus 20, we get one of the famous passages in Exodus where God gives these Ten Commandments to Moses for the people of Israel, and as we look at it, it's also for us <clears throat> as well. These ways in which God instructs people to live and to treat people and to respond to him. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Exodus chapter 20. If you don't, don't worry, it's going to be on the screen. We're going to be reading Exodus chapter 21 through 21. So if you remember, last week we kind of uh, we kind of introducing this time as they are approaching the holy mountain and God shows up in this, this tremendous scene that demonstrates God's holiness and now this is continuing and it says this in verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make your... For yourselves a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You should not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold you guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. In the six days the Lord has made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder you should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not bear false witness against your neighbor. You should not covet your neighbor's house. You should not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come 
to test you that the fear of him and thick darkness where God was. So what do we take from this passage, this giving of the law, this giving of the Ten Commandments? And I would offer this. God's law sets us apart and guides us in love. Then when we read this, when we understand God's moral law that's given us in the Ten Commandments, we see that's given with a purpose. And it's to set God's people apart from the rest of the world as well as to guide us in how we love, how we love Him and how we love others. And we're going to talk about all the Ten Commandments in one kind of grouping today. And if you wanted a more, more detailed version through each one, actually just a year ago, just a little over a year ago, we went through each one of these. And so you can actually look those up. Uh, on our website as well, and you can have a, a message for each of the Ten Commandments. But we're talking about the whole thing together, and we see that this gives us a, 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 a it sets us apart, and it gives us a guide on how we love. And that when we come to the law, the moral law that God gives us in Exodus is actually a very good thing. A very good thing that's still relevant for Christians today is what uh, the reformers back in the, in, the, um, in, in the 1500s would call the third use of the law, meaning that the law gives us a guide that we follow. The law actually gives us a chart, a chart is the course that we can follow, and it teaches us how we can please God. We earn salvation through it. We don't, you know, earn brownie points with God through it, but it teaches us how to respond to his grace, how we respond to the salvation he's given us by walking in his ways. And that's why we would say the law sets us apart, and it guides us in love, because it makes us his people when we follow his law. But you know, it's funny, when we think about rules or we think about law, there's some tension, especially now in modern day Christianity, because most often, we've probably even said it, we've probably even heard it, we've, we've, we, you've been around it, when people talk about, hey, Christianity is not about rules, it's about relationship. Have you heard that before? Maybe you've said it? Maybe you're trying to convince someone, hey, we're not like one of those churches that makes you like change everything before you come into the door, but we focus on actually knowing Christ. And there's truth there. But we kind of, it's kind of the air we breathe nowadays in some, uh, some corners of evangelicalism, this idea that Christianity is not about rules, it's about relationship. It's half right, or it's kind of right. I don't know if it's half right. I can't do the math on it, because you can't really do a math on that things. It's kind of right because we're, we're kind of a little gun-shy about rules. There's two ways in which people tend to fall off with rules. They either think somehow they can decide saying, I must do, I must achieve, I must be that good person so God loves me. And that's what's called legalism, this idea that we're going to follow his rules and somehow we're going to gain and make him love us and you know, white-knuckle life and say, we can do this. That's falling off because we can't earn salvation that way. But then in response to that, maybe a lot of, a lot of uh, the modern generation grew up or kind of was around churches that kind of lived that way, kind of do, 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 achieve, achieve, put at least that veneer on that you're a good person so that you can be accepted by the church or maybe think God accepts you. And so as a response to that, people fall off on the other side and say, well, it's just about loving God and doing whatever we just want to do. And that side is antinomios, this idea against the law, saying, you can't judge me. 
You can't tell me how to follow God. I can do whatever I want, and God is pleased with that. And we fall off on either of these two sides, and in either way is kind of looking at God's rules for life in the wrong way. He's given us these good rules to follow because they give us life and they show us how we should be his, but we use them wrongly or disregard them to our peril. People like to pit the law and grace against each other like they're enemies. Hand in hand, and they work for our good. Because Christianity is about a relationship. It is about knowing who Christ is. It is about submitting to him and following him, though. Because guess what? Every relationship is improved and boistered by rules. I'll just give you an illustration. If you were brave enough to be a substitute teacher for a kindergarten class, would you choose the class that knew the rules on how it operates with respect to the teacher, or would you choose a class that has just thrown all rules overboard and is a bunch of wild badgers? You would choose the one who knew how rules operate and how they treat a teacher and how they operate in class. Rules actually work for the betterment of a relationship. And it's the same thing with our faith with Christ, is that yes, we're saved by grace. Yes, it's about a relationship with Christ. But how do we relate to Christ? How do we do what he's commanded us to do? How do we respond to this good, great salvation and grace he's given us that changes us from the inside out? What do we do in response? And he says, you follow my words. And we go together. A lawfulness, a right-minded lawfulness, thinking about God's rules and regulations for our life is actually a good thing because it teaches us how to live like Christ. Christ himself said this in John 14, 15, when he says, if you obey my commandments, you show that you love me. He says, if anyone loves me, they obey my commandments. Why? Because if they know me, if they respond to my grace, if they, if they want to be with me, they'll naturally say, hey, how do I live? How, what do I do in response? And he has given us what we need to do. We live for him. So when we come to the law, we have to realize these grace and the law go together because the law charts that path for us and how we can follow him. We also have to realize that the law is received differently by different people. What I mean by that is how we receive the law as Christians, as believers, is different than the non-believer receives the law. The non-believer, the person who does not know Christ, hears these commands and is burdened by them and is crushed by them because they cannot live them out. They see them as rules and regulations that they cannot achieve, and so it pushes them out, and, they, and it makes them cry out for some relief. How could they make people realize they need a Savior? It makes people realize they can't earn salvation. They can't be good enough for God. And so it drives people to their knees, and hopefully it, cries, it drives them to cry out to God, in which if they do, he responds. But the believer, if you believe in Jesus Christ, when you read the law, when we receive the law, we receive it fundamentally differently because we see it as a way of life. 
It's not burdensome because we don't see it as something we have to do or achieve to get something. It's actually just telling us how we respond to God's grace. And we willfully, should willfully, joyfully walk in light of it. Using it as that signpost pointing to a right relationship with him. That's not burdensome. Why? Because it's not like we're getting on a treadmill trying to trace after them, trying to achieve them, trying to be, you know, catch them all and then meet some status, trying to get that kind of uh, those bonus points for God so he looks upon us nicely. No, it's not burdensome. Why? Because we know that through his grace he has saved us. And now in light of that, we respond to him and look towards the law as a guide to how do I now respond with my life to honor him and what he has done for me. God's, God's law set us apart. Fundamental about God's law is that no matter who you are, unbeliever or a believer, what do they do? What does the law do? It points to Christ. The non-believer who can't do it, can't do it, it points to Christ because they're looking for a Savior and it points to him. It's like he is a Savior who has achieved it, who can save you because he's done it perfectly. The believer, it points to Christ because we go, hey, by doing this, by following it, I actually become more like him. I start living toward his standard, and he has achieved it and gives me the power to walk in his ways. Both of these point to Christ as we look towards him as our strength. God's law sets us apart and guides us in love. And just to say it again, I've already said it many times, but I'll just say it again. It's all based on grace. Even in this text, we see how it's based on grace. In verse 2, it says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Again, right before he speaks the law, the moral law, the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel, before he says, this is how you live, this is how you respond to me, what does he do? He says, remember how I have saved you. Remember my nature. Remember my love. And the short little sentence about how I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you out of slavery, he's reminding them that they have already been redeemed. He's reminding them they've already been saved. He's reminding them about how he's provided for them, how he's given to them, how he's led them, how he parted the seas for them. He's reminding them all these things. Why? Because he's, he's making it very crystal clear. These commandments are not something you do to get, but these commandments are something you do because you're responsible responding to what I've already done. That you respond to what God has done because he saved us by grace and now we live in response. So we take him as word and we read these and seek to follow. So what, is, what do these commandments mean and how do they point to God? Well, let's just look at these, the Ten Commandments quickly and how they point to God. First of all, we need to notice a pattern that's set up right at the beginning. That there's four commandments that are vertical and six that are horizontal. What I mean by there's four commandments. The first four are all about our relationship with God. How do we relate to God? And then the rest, the six, are how do we relate to our neighbor? We just read in uh, Matthew 22 about how Jesus sums up the law by loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second one is like this, love your neighbor as yourself. It kind of shows that pattern as well. The greatest thing is you go vertical and then you go horizontal. 
What's great about our relationship with Christ is that pattern is almost a big thing about that, is that as we receive forgiveness from God, therefore we can pass it on to others. But when you start thinking about our relationship with God, that pattern is fundamentally true with everything. As we receive grace from God, we can give grace to others. As we receive patience from God, we can give patience to others. As we receive love from God, we can love others. That our vertical relationship, this pattern, if we're right with God, we actually can start being right with our neighbors, with people around us, that God, if we get our relationship with God right and how we love him and know what he's given to us, we can fundamentally be changed where we can treat others the way they should be treated and love others the way they need to be loved. So that pattern is very important. That comes first. The vertical comes first, us being right with God. And then from that, all these other things flow. So what God says, hey, you should have no other gods before me. God says, I am the only God. With a simple statement, God does away with any atheism, not believing that God exists, or any pantheism, believing the world is God, or any polytheism, that there's somehow multiple gods, a council of gods that rules the earth. He says, no, I'm it. I am God, and there's no other God you honor before me. And we see this pattern start in these first four. It says, I am the only one worthy of worship. As it says later, our God is a jealous God, knowing that he is the only one who deserves worship, the only one who actually deserves it and is worthy of it. And so he's the only one who rightly receives it. Then he says, hey, how you worship is important as well. Don't make carved images and set them up as a god. He's forbidding any outright idolatry of setting up an image because he's saying how we worship is important. The correct object is important as well as the way in which we worship is important. That God does not want us to set up anything that would limit our view of who he is. That anything that we could possibly make, any kind of image we could point to, naturally starts putting God in a box that you can't do. It naturally starts limiting God in some way, in some function, and you can't do that to God because he can't be contained. He can't be tamed. He is God. He's fundamentally different and other than we possibly can imagine that we can't capture him with any kind of image. He says, don't do that. Of course, it's going to lead you away. And then he says, you should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That we should be careful how we speak his name. Now, this goes beyond just, you know, watching out for how we use God in a sense or for this, this, this word that you should not take the name of the Lord of your Lord your God in vain it means this, carries this idea of your, um, your carrying or bearing God's name. It's actually car- carrying this weight that when we claim to be God's, when we claim his name upon our life, that we are his, we should be careful to live in accordance and actually not show that we're, fa- we're, we're false for taking that name. And she's not just speaking about how we use his name, it's speaking about how we, as people who claim him as our God, operate as his people. That we need to be careful about that. And then it talks about the Sabbath day and how we keep it holy. And it bases it in creation that God created for six days and on the seventh he rested. And it provides this pattern that we need to rest in what God has done. And again, it's pointing to this right relation with God. It's showing, hey, you need to be dependent on him. 
Because that's what the Sabbath day does. It instills in us this ideal that we cannot somehow work hard enough or do enough to somehow manage our life perfectly that actually we can rest. We can take a step back. Why? Because we know God has it. And we show our dependence upon him by honoring it and walking in it. These four commandments are supposed to think about him and see him as this only God who's worthy of worship. And then the rest six are now how we treat others. It's funny, these six commandments that we're about to hit, these, the ones about how we treat others, they're, they're, they are almost universally recognized as what would be put in some rules of how we relate to people. You go to almost any culture, almost any society, and they'll kind of point to most of these, if not all of them, as good ways to live. They're kind of baked into our DNA, you could say. They're, they're like written in our, who we are as human beings that we should honor and follow these because we recognize how important they are. And so God, God gives these to us because it, it gives us a good pattern on how we treat one another. Number one is that we should not murder. That seems self-explanatory, shouldn't it? No one's advocating for that, usually. If they are, they're, they're kind of, they're, they're using different language, but when it goes as those are not murder, you're like, yeah, that's a given. Humanity knows that. We should not take someone else's life. And, and God's reinforced that. Why? Because humanity is, is created in the image of God. And actually, it's very important. God made all humans. They reflect him. They bear his image. And therefore, they're fundamentally deflect the glory of God. They're made in God's image. And therefore, you should not kill that image. You should not murder human, humans. That is valuable. That God is the one who gives life. God has right over all life. He's in control of him. And so we would usurp our positions if we were to murder and take life from someone else. He says, you don't do that. It, you do not <clears throat> kill someone. I just realized I skipped number five. But that was number six. How well do you know your Ten Commandments? Who spotted that mistake? I just realized this. Number five, going back one step, before we even talk about taking life, God gives a command to honor your mother and your father. Again, that's actually the first command with how we operate with one another, is that we honor our, our, our father and our mother. Actually, the first command with a promise that and later in a... Uh, Deuteronomy kind of highlights, but right here it says, you know, this promise that's tied to if we honor them, we'll live long in the line, and live long in the land, talking to Israel, saying they'll live long in the land if they're honoring the mother and father. Why? Because this command teaches us the right place of authority in our life. The father and their mother, as they teach them the ways of God, they'll be following who God is, and therefore they will be staying long in the land. But it teaches us fundamentally, even not tied to that promise for us, when you read this, we honor our parents. Why? Because it teaches us there is right authority. That when we walk and we see someone above us and we see someone who loves us, who wants the best for us, who's working 
their lives to give us what we need and we honor them. It actually is training us up in that now when we look above them and we see who is above all, God, who loves us, cares for us, and working to provide for us, we rightly can transfer or look how, how we honor him like we honor our parents. And we walk in that, trains us in that authority. And then we go into not killing people. And then we go into the fact that uh, you don't commit murder, then you should not commit adultery. This idea that God honors marriage, that he is the one who instituted marriage, he's the one who made it, he's the one who called it good, he's the one who brought a man and a woman together and performed the first marriage, if you want to say, in the Garden of Eden, he's given this for society, and so that there should be purity there in that relationship. It points to God's purity and how he deals with us. It's actually one, one of those big kind of imagery that has brought a bride for him from his people and how he is pursuing them with that love and that we should respond with purity. And so he honors that marriage and that we are looking towards him as he is faithful and gives us a guide for holiness. <clears throat> that we should not steal Again, we realize this. It's one of the simple commands, do not steal. But in that simple kind of command, it points to the fact that we should not be looking to wrongfully take for our own gain, but we look to God and trust God as our provider. We trust Him in all these things so that we don't feel the need to steal. We actually see how God values personal property and the rightful attaining of things, and so we, we see his integrity there. And uh, commandment number nine is that you should, not fall, you should not bear false witness against your neighbor. A lot of people summarize this, you should not lie, and that's true. That's what it's saying, you should not lie, but it carries something deeper than that. It's saying actually you should have integrity. Because again, bearing false witness kind of points us into kind of the realm of course that you're speaking kind of uh, against someone. You're, you're trumping up charges against them. But this is speaking that, no, my people have integrity. What they speak is true. They have integrity. Why? Because God is a God of justice. God is a God of truth. And so we honor him and follow his ways as we seek to live out this commandment. And number 10 is that you should not covet. And he lists a lot of things there. We shouldn't get bogged down in all the things he lists because chances are you're not coveting your neighbor's oxen or his donkey. You might. You might live out in the country. You might see a mighty fine donkey out there and say, I wish that was my donkey. But that's not what, that's not what, you know, the, the principle of this command goes beyond the, what is listening, beyond the servants, beyond the donkeys and, the, and all that stuff. It's talking about how when we look at what other people have, are we content in what God has given us and blessed us with? Or do we believe that something else, something else besides God, something that's temporal, something that is fleeting in this world, will give us something that's going to make us satisfied? Because we do all the time. I do all the time. Maybe it's just me. But I look around and say, man, if only I had that, my life would be better. If only I had that position or that job, or if I only had that, ooh, that's a nice car. If only I, had, 
I work out with a lot of people who have lots of boats. And it's tempting, especially on a Memorial Day weekend, to go, man, wouldn't it be, how do they have a boat? And you kind of, if you don't watch yourself, you can start thinking, man, if I only had that, it would be so much better. And God says, don't covet. Why? Because when you start looking for other things, you are actually now violating those first four commandments. Because you're looking at other things as if they can satisfy you like only I can. So he says, don't do it. Look towards me instead. That God's law sets us apart and guides us in love. Guides us in how we love him, and it guides us in how we love others. So much more could be said about those Ten Commandments, and we've said that. As I said, you can go look and listen to messages about each one. So much could be said. But fundamentally, when you read those commandments, we, we can read those, and if we view them again, if we view them as if we have to do those to earn, if we have to do those to achieve a right space with God, we would be crushed. We, could be, we would receive them like Israel receives them in verses 18 through 20. saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. The people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They were fair and trembling because they saw God's holiness. They were fair and trembling. Why? Because they heard these commands and they knew they could not live with them. And so they said, you speak on us for us, Moses, because we cannot handle gazing upon God because we would die if he even speaks to us. And made them fall to their knees, humbling, begging, please let there be a way in which we could have a relationship with God because we cannot do these things. But it's a, it's a fear of God. And that should be a correct fear that guides us as Christians. We should uh, approach it with the same kind of attitude, this fear and trembling as we see God's holiness, as we see his command, that we fall to our knees. But what's for us is we know the truth that Jesus has fulfilled these commands, that Jesus has done this perfectly, that he has saved us, that he now ushers us into the throne of grace. And so we still fall to our knees, trembling with fear, but a correct fear. Knowing who our God is and saying, now God, guide me and direct me. Give me the power of God to follow these commands. Give me the heart to want to do these things. Give fear and then we use these gifts to guide us in his ways because God's law sets us apart and guides us in love as we seek to follow him. So we can ask ourselves, when we read his law, where does our hope lie? When we read these commands and we read further and we see more commands and we read throughout the whole Bible and we see commands and ways to live, where does our hope lie? And this is one time when the Sunday school answer is the correct answer. Where does our hope lie? Jesus. We look to him as the author and perfecter of our faith. That when we come as Christians to the law, we realize that Jesus has done all of this. He's achieved all of this. 
That is, when we read this, we say, I can't honestly read and say I've done all these things, especially how God, uh, through Jesus, and uh, reinterpreted it in the New Testament, that I fall short of these things all the time. That my, I might not be doing these outward things to other people, but my heart is doing them. And I fall short, and I cannot live up to the standard. And so where is my hope? And the answer is he's, he's completed them. That he has the righteousness that we need. That we need to look no further than him and we trust in his righteousness. That when we enter into heaven, when we walk up to heaven and we're ushered in, that we're not going to say, look how well I completed your Ten Commandments, God. Therefore I get in, right? No, it's all because of Jesus. That when we come into heaven, it's because he has ushered us into heaven. And he says, he is mine. My blood covers him. There is no more sin in him. You, God, Father, look at him through the lens of me and see him and love him like you love me. And there is our hope. That our hope lies in the fact that Jesus has done it all and he's done perfectly. And we follow him. And in the meantime, waiting for that blessed hope, As we live here, we look towards God's law to help guide us in how we respond to him. Because God's law sets us apart and guides us in love. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word that we can read it and understand it and know it, that we can respond to who you are, that we can see your character written in your law, but we can also see Rules that help us love you, help us love others, but that he's done it for us and we can respond because Jesus has saved us.